Oh, man. Now, look, I just got to be honest with you. That song at all of our locations, Hope Has a Name, if uh, you were into that song, if that song was affecting you, you already heard the sermon today. So you can probably just get up and leave be okay because, no, don't do that. I worked really hard on this sermon, so I don't, I, I don't want you to miss out. But boy, that is the message that you're going to hear today is that hope has a name and that name is Jesus. And we're going to find it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Before we get into that, I just want you to be praying hard uh, for what's going on at camp right now. Because high schoolers are there, and uh, I was there uh, yesterday uh, afternoon, and I was hearing testimonies being given, and people sharing from their heart, uh, high schoolers sharing from their heart, college students sharing from their heart, and, uh, and God is working in a powerful way there right now. He's moving in the lives of those high schoolers, and that's what that camp is all about. It's about life change. It's about seeing the Holy Spirit work in young hearts and developing those hearts into fully devoted followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus that are going to follow him all the days of their lives. So you be praying for them. Okay, would you do that? I want to welcome all the campuses that are joining uh, with us today, everybody inside, everybody online. And I'm going to totally date myself, all right? I'm a Billy Joel fan. How many of you even know who I'm talking about, okay? I'm a Billy Joel fan, and I can't help it uh, because it's my age and, uh, the, and like when his like big albums came out. It was my senior year in high school, and Billy Joel came out with the album The Stranger. And uh, it was an incredible, incredible album. It had songs like Moving Out. Only the Good Die Young, She's Always a Woman to Me, Just the, I Love You Just the Way You Are. I mean, it's, I mean, every single song on that album was a hit. It went platinum 10 times over. I want you to think of just for a second, like if, you know, you're dating me, but I want you to think how many artists do you know that had number one songs in three different decades? It's a pretty short list. Billy Joel's one of them. So that was in, that was in uh, 78. In 83, that was the year I got married, he came out with another incredible album called An Innocent Man. Once again, hit after hit. It was all inspired by Christy Brinkley that he'd married, right? Had Uptown Girl, Tell Her About It, Keeping the Faith, The Longest Time, and of course The Innocent Man had this hit after hit. It went platinum seven times over. The last major album that Billy Joel released was in 1993, 10 years after that, and it was called River of Dreams. And the title track on that album, I don't know, it might be familiar to you. Just listen to it. You'll, you'll, you'll get a... In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. How many of you remember that? Oh, yeah. What, what a... What a groove, right? Just an incredible song. A lot of great songs on this uh, album as well. But so, I mean, just he just kept on pumping out the hits. And the interesting thing about River of Dreams, that album used the afterlife as, an, as the inspiration for the, the album. But there's only one problem with that, uh, using that as inspiration. Billy Joel's an atheist. 
So here he writes a whole album about the afterlife, does an incredible job, and he's an atheist. Now, he grew up in a Jewish home, and he dabbled with Christianity early in life, but that's where he ended up landing, as, as an atheist. And that's all well and good for Billy Joel, except when his seven-year-old daughter at the time, Alexa, asks him this question as she's getting ready for bed. Daddy, where do we go when we die? Billy Joel didn't have a good answer for that. But he put down his thoughts in a song that's on that album, A Lullaby. And uh, it's, I don't know, you, you, you decide what you think about his idea. Because his response was given in a 2016 interview with Sirius XM. And this is his quote. I told her that after you die... You go into other people's hearts, and they take you with them through their lives, and then you pass that on to your children. He went on to describe the question his daughter gave him as a scary question. Hmm. Some of you may have heard the name of Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, passed away not too long ago. He was renowned uh, for his... uh, uh, theories, but he was also an atheist, and he was quoted saying this, it is my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. And this leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. Isn't that weird? That he talks about a grand design with no designer. We, we have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I am extremely grateful. Hmm. Well, they're in the vast minority. About 4%, according to a Pew Research poll, about 4% today of the American population is atheist. Another 5% would call themselves agnostic. That's a little harder word maybe to define, but what it means is that they really don't have or think there is an explanation for our existence. It's a question without an answer. Psychology Today, the magazine, says about three-fourths of Americans believe in an afterlife, and the other 25% really don't believe or don't know. They They just don't know. Some might say that these beliefs that we carry with us about about an afterlife, about heaven or hell or, you know, this reckoning, they're not scientific, but they're religious superstition. But I have to tell you, there was a long list of scientists who did believe, like Copernicus, Francis Bacon, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Max Planck, Albert Einstein, uh, Louis Faraday, Pat Louis Pasteur, Kelvin, many more. A lot of scientists recognized that there was a grand design and a grand designer. But that's not really the point. The point is, or the question is, what do you believe? And why do you believe whatever it is that you believe? And if you're looking for the answers to the deepest questions, and this is definitely one of them, the deepest questions of life, and you turn to your Bible, 
I'm going to say something that's a little out of my personal character, and that is this. It's probably a good idea to stay away from the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon, in this stage of his life, is a man with no rock to stand on in the middle of water over his head. Now, make no mistake, it is true that God gave Solomon this incredible gift of practical wisdom. And we can use that practical gift of wisdom as we read what he has written, like for all the things that we deal with in our lives, in the lower story component of our lives. And we do know that Solomon believed in God. I mean, you can read Ecclesiastes and you can see, yeah, he definitely believed in God. He wasn't an atheist. And you can even say that he believed that we would have to answer to God for whatever we did, because the very end of the book, he does say that. But there is nothing that gives me the impression that he actually believed that he would ever meet God or have any kind of a meaningful relationship with God or experience an afterlife with God. I, I, uh, I see him kind of as a proto-Sadducee. So like, you know, during the time of Jesus, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were like the two religious governing bodies that came together to form what was called the Sanhedrin. And the major difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Pharisees believed in the prophets of the Old Testament and life after death, and the Sadducees did not believe in the prophets of the Old Testament, or they did not, and they did not believe in life after death. And that's why I, th- I kind of see Solomon as a proto-Sadducee before, you know, like a Uh, hundreds of years before they were ever a thing. Why do I believe that? Well, I believe that because of Solomon's own words. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 8, 14, and 15. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Now that's true, isn't it? You've seen that. You've experienced that. And it's probably frustrated you before. How come there they seem to be and I'm, you know. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend, listen to this, the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be glad. Kind of reminds me of a story Jesus said about a guy who tore his small barns down. He built bigger barns. And he said, now let's take life easy and eat and drink and be merry. And God came to him that night and said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then who will get all that you've stored up for yourself? But when I look at Solomon in Ecclesiastes 8, I see a man who has no little or no regard for the upper story. Makes me question, did he even believe that there was life after death? Look at Ecclesiastes 3, 19 to 21. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage. Listen to that. Over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. 
Who knows if the human spirit, listen to that, who knows, that means it's a question, if the human spirit rises upward, if the spirit of an animal goes down to the earth. He has no idea. This is a man with questions, but no answers. Doesn't look like it to me. Look at Ecclesiastes 6.12. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Again, questions, no answers. Huh. How did he come to this conclusion? Did anyone before him believe in an afterlife? Or was that just kind of the general consensus a thousand years before Jesus was born? No, that's not true. His father did. David believed in an afterlife. Let me show you a few passages in Psalms, starting with 16, 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest, also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You will make known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Even though that's prophetic about Jesus, this is what David believed. Uh, you, uh, you look at uh, 4915, Psalm 4915. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. Buy me back is what redeem means. He will surely take me to himself. Look at uh, chapter 73, verses 23 to 26. Yet I am always with you, Uh, You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, see that? You will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Solomon had a conclusion, but it wasn't the same conclusion as his father. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back. The very first book written in the Bible, not the first one that you see in order, that's Genesis, but the first one written in the Bible, the oldest book, is the book of Job. And uh, uh, It's the oldest Old Testament book. What did Job think about the afterlife? Well, let's look at Job 19, 25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You know, Job's got no idea how God's going to do this, but he believes in his heart that somehow God is going to raise him from the dead. Isn't that awesome? Through it all, and he went through a lot, Job maintained that God was right, even though it seemed like God was allowing Job to suffer for no reason at all. But the only way for God to be right that made sense to Job was that there had to be a resurrection. Just Job? No. Abraham did. Lived a thousand years before Solomon. Abraham said that he believed in a city with foundations and also a specific resurrection 
uh, and a general resurrection. We know that because of Hebrews 11.10 and 11.19. It says, this is talking about Abraham. He was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's talking about heaven. And in 19, talking about sacrificing his son Isaac, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. He thought he was going to kill his son on that mountain, and then God was going to raise him back to life. So And so, in a manner, speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham believed in an afterlife. So did Moses. 1446 B.C., almost 500 years before Solomon. Moses was at the burning bush, and God spoke through that burning bush to Moses, and he said these words, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. By the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years before Moses was at that bush. When Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees and they were saying there was no afterlife, Jesus reminded them of this scripture and said, you remember at the burning, because they did believe in Moses and the law and the burning bush, and he said, do you remember that he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Because you see what the Sadducees said was that God's not a God of the dead, he's a God of the living. And so he used their own scripture against them and said, look, when God said that, Abraham, Isaac, and And Jacob, even though they were long dead to the world, they weren't dead. They were still living because he was still that God. In Exodus 32, 32, Moses says this. He says, but now, this is when he's pleading for the life of the Israelites in the wilderness. Please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He's referring to the Lamb's book of life. He goes, let me pay for them. Erase me from your book. So Solomon had plenty of great examples if if you really were wanting to discuss the afterlife. But for some reason, he just didn't get it. Why is that? You see, Solomon over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, not only says this is meaningless, he also uses this other phrase. And that phrase is under the sun. Under the sun. So under the sun is a descriptive term of the lower story. It's like the life that you live where you're just grinding it out every day. And Solomon's wisdom is great for the lower story. If you're wanting to do well under the sun, then Solomon's got a lot of stuff to share with you, right? But you know, there's an upper story, and it's not under the sun, it's over the sun. Solomon believed in God, but he had little understanding of his relationship, God's relationship to people. And it's pretty clear to me that he saw death pretty much as the end. I mean, we see this in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 10. Look at this. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. 
This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. It's like it doesn't matter, like heaven, hell, good, bad, huh? No, it's the same. It's all the same. And basically, you're dead. The hearts of people moreover are full of evil, and there's a madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. We just sang a song, Hope Has a Name. Anyone who's living has hope. Good question if they really do. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Like, okay, whatever you want. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life. In your toilsome labor under the sun. Boy, if that isn't cynical and fatalistic, I don't know what is. So the real question isn't what Solomon didn't see. The real question is what you see. What you see right now. I can't tell you what you see. Only you can tell yourself that. But I can tell you what I see. I see a man paying a debt for me on a Roman cross so that I can be free. I see that. I see a dead body coming to life again to prove to me that he can do the very same for me. That's what I see. I see a, a broken person healed in places that no physician can reach except for the great physician. I see a person that is filled with purpose and hope as he looks at an unknown future. I see a relationship available to every person right now, no matter what they've done, that is greater and more long-lasting than any other relationship that we can realize. I see the burden of my sin falling away and being carried away. And I can see a person lit up with Holy Spirit fire. A number of years ago, I'd say about uh, 11 or 12 years ago, I was in Colorado Springs at a retreat with some friends of mine, Jim Putman. I was getting to have an opportunity to speak with him. David Platt was there. I was really looking forward to meet a guy that was going to be there. His name was Avery Willis. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet him because two weeks before that conference, he died. And that was a sad day for that conference and the, you know, and the opportunity that I wanted to have. But Avery Willis was describing his life and his eternity, and he wrote it down before he died. And this is what he said. This is a quote. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. 
The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and down with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, work till he stops me, and when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen? Amen. I couldn't have said it that well, but I'll say this. Someday, I will open my eyes in heaven. And my vision will be filled with the face of Jesus. I will walk on the streets of pure gold. I will eat from the tree of life and drink from the river of the water of life. I will see my mother, my father, my brother. And the actual people from the Bible stories I've taught for all these many years. I'll have a new body. It's smaller than this one. A glorified body and a new mind to go with it. I won't sin anymore. I won't get sick anymore. I won't hurt anymore. I won't mourn or weep anymore. Every dark and awful thing of this world will be swallowed up in the overwhelming light of my Heavenly Father. You know, I really like Billy Joel's music. But when it comes to the afterlife, Billy Joel got it wrong, way wrong. You see, it's not about whether or not you're in someone else's heart. It's whether or not Jesus is in your heart. Because hope has a name. Solomon he had a lot of answers to a lot of earthly questions. But when it came to heaven, all he had was questions. And he only needed one answer. He only needed one name. And that's a name you have. And that's a name that you can call on. 
Because the name of Jesus is the name of the Son of God who came to this earth for the purpose of dying for your sin and mine, being buried, rising again on the third day to prove once and for all that he has the power to raise you from death to life and give you hope, not just for today, but for all eternity. We're moving to a time of decision. You know, uh, I know that there's people in this room right now, people online right now. You know about Jesus. You couldn't have listened to this sermon without knowing more, knowing about Jesus. The question isn't whether or not you know about him. The question is whether or not you know him. Wouldn't you agree with me there's a big difference between knowing about a person and knowing a person personally? And, and God's not inviting you to know about Jesus. He's not inviting you to know about a Savior. He's not inviting you to know about a Lord. He's inviting you to know Jesus. To be in relationship with Jesus. To know that He's your Savior. To know that He's your Lord. Right now, what God wants is He wants to take that that place in your heart that's empty or dark, that's full of questions, and He wants to fill that empty place with hope. He wants to fill that empty place with the presence of His Son. And there is nothing in this world, nothing in the spiritual world, nothing in eternity that has the ability to keep you from receiving that to yourself except one thing. You. In this moment right now, you're the only one that stands in the way of being able to receive the eternal hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ personally. So maybe the prayer today for you, if I'm speaking to you right now, is I need to get myself out of the way and let God give me the thing that he paid for so dearly. There's going to be someone standing right over here by this baptistry. If you're online, there's a button that you can press and you can talk to someone. They'll pray with you right now because we would love nothing more than for you to make this day the most life-changing, important decision-making day of your entire existence on this planet. And heaven will rejoice. I'm going to tell you right now, God has his angels standing at guard all around this building. And he is protecting this moment for you.
so that you can have this moment of clarity where you can say, I want that. And if you do, don't hesitate. Go right up to that person and talk to them. You'll never regret it. Many of you here today have made that decision for Christ. And I appreciate that. Just the thought of knowing that we'll see each other in the glory of heaven. Where all this other stuff is just gone. And that we'll have that unfettered access, not only to God, not only to Jesus, but to each other. And experience a oneness. I mean, you can experience a little tiny taste of it here, but it's nothing like what we're going to experience together in eternity. And right now, if you're struggling, maybe it's you, maybe it's someone you know, someone that you love, you're carrying a burden right now, that burden's weighing you down, you're feeling the weight of it on your shoulders, I invite you right now, whether it's your issue or someone else's issue, to come up here to these steps and lay it down. Talk to the Lord. He'll hear you. Leave that burden here. He'll take it. I wonder, this is just for this room, right? I wonder how many of you have come up here to these steps in the past and shed tears, wet the carpet with your tears, laid a burden down. There's going to be a change up here next week. It's going to start actually right after second service. This, this stage is going to change. It's going to, be, it's going to go from like kind of a squared stage to a rounded stage. It's going to have all new steps and everything. Kind of like Billy Joel here. There's a lot of nostalgia. A lot of memories on these steps. Some of you believers maybe say, one last time before they take these steps away and replace them with new ones I just want one last time come up here pour my heart out to the Lord would you stand with me Heavenly Father in Jesus name I thank you that we have a place to go when we feel powerless, when we feel broken, when we hurt, whether it's for ourselves or for someone else, that we don't have to walk through this life by ourselves and we don't have to shoulder our burdens alone, that you're right here with us, that you don't leave us or forsake us. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would just be open to you now. And I pray, Father, that we'll just take this moment, take it captive, and share it with you and your son. In Jesus' name, amen.